extolled the privilege of hosting and introducing our speaker tonight. Because uh, um, I said I stole the privilege of introducing our speaker tonight because of how much we've done together and how much your work means to me. Uh, uh, I've known Professor Cheryl Manley for a long time. Uh, she is an anthropologist. She got a PhD at MIT. She worked under the supervision of Donald Schoen, who many of us know as the author of The Reflective Practitioner and Training for the Training for the Reflective Practice. No, it's not here. Let me unmute this. Uh, I thought I could do Holland. No. <laughs> no Holland. Yeah. Yeah. So with a PhD in anthropology, she comes to California. She's at um, her university. She's not the University of Southern California. And she's kind of between projects. She had been studying the World Bank and how economists do their work. And then she kind of ran out of funding for that, and she picked up a gig, as I call it, <laughs> at the School of Occupational Science. Because the occupational therapists knew that they needed someone to help them see what they do. So that's what she did. She went to work for the occupational therapists to help them see what they do. And as a participant observer, as an ethnographer, she became deeply, deeply implanted in the work of occupational therapists and developed from that work her revolutionary ideas about the nature of narrative. Narrative, I will argue in this book, this is from her healing dramas and clinical plots. I have that almost right. Is that right? Healing dramas and clinical plots. She says, um, narrative not only functions as a form of talk, it also serves as an aesthetic and moral form underlying clinical action. That is, Therapists and patients not only tell stories, sometimes they create story-like structures through their interactions. Furthermore, this effort at story-making, which I will refer to as therapeutic employment, is integral to the healing power of this practice. She was working with occupational therapists, but she could have been working with physical therapists, arguably with surgeons, with um, palliative care uh, clinicians, uh, with yoga teachers, uh, with meditation teachers, in that the narrativity uh, need not even be said, but need to be seen, to be shown. Her book after this is called The Paradox of Hope. And she engaged with a group of families of children with very serious illnesses. 
In the course of her study, quite a few of the children had died. She says she keeps those dead children on her enrollment rolls for her NIH yearly reports, because even though they're dead and they're ghosts, they remain very vital members of the family and continue to have impact on her research. Uh, the book that just came out is called Moral Laboratories, Family Peril, and the Struggle for Good Love. So you can see just from the bloody nouns she uses that she understands the, the stakes, what the stakes are in these moments, whether they're moments or lifetimes of serious illness. She spent a lot of time in her book, The Paradox of Hope, in waiting rooms, lobbies. And she talks about the liminality, the, the neither here nor there aspect, not only in the waiting room itself, but of the waiting. That, that, that being sick is kind of a form of travel. And it always made me think of like Greyhound bus terminals. You know, you're here, but you're not here. You're on your way somewhere, but you're not sure you want to go there. You don't have a return ticket. All of that kind of stuff. The scene of travel attended by experiences of estrangement and displacement. So that's what Charlotte knows about sickness. That's what those of us who do what we do around sickness often don't know, because if we let ourselves know, it would be terrified. And so Cheryl will tell us more. Well, Rita, thank you for that really wonderful introduction. I, um, I'm really pleased to be here at this, uh, and I can't quite figure, okay, just have to live with the fact that I have, sometimes I want to read, so then I have to be kind of here. Sometimes I want to look at what's on the slide, so, and then sometimes I'll try to move this direction. So if you could, if you could live with a certain amount of moving around, that's going to be needed for this talk. Um, but first of all, I really want to say thank you to Rita and to the program that you're developing here, which, you know, maybe you realize this, but, but, but you live here. So just to tell you that this has been absolutely inspirational. Um, not only across the country, but uh, I go to Denmark a lot. I have a Danish uh, colleague here. Um, and um, they're, they're, this, is a, this is a kind of global movement, I think. And uh, we don't necessarily know the fate of narratives in this attempt to bring narrative closer to clinical practice and to think more seriously about its interpenetration. But, um, I, for one, as an anthropologist who don't really intervene in, at least not in my self-description, um, am very appreciative of people who both do research but also find ways to try to help um, change practice in, in this effort to keep the people who get sick and the families somehow in the middle, even while paying attention to lots of other important things. So, all right. Here I am at the epicenter of narrative medicine. Uh, very pleased to be here. And 
Um, I'm going to uh, very quickly, if I figured out how to do this, uh, hang on. Okay. Um, I thought I would just give a couple of voices of some of the people who have been so important to um, this narrative medicine movement over these last, I guess it's at least 20 years, or almost 20 years since I've known about it. So here are Trish Greenhall and Brian Hurwitz um, saying, you know, even the most pompous professors have been known to warn their students, listen to the patient, he or she is telling you the diagnosis. A more sophisticated view holds that when doctors take a medical history, they inevitably act as ethnographers, historians, and biographers. So, uh, and these, uh, Trish at least is an MD. So it's been very interesting, speaking as an anthropologist, to see how some people who from within the clinical community have been at the forefront of um, trying to think about this, about importing narrative more uh, self-consciously into medicine. And here from Rita, one of my favorite, I guess we're quoting each other today, one of my very favorite quotes. Um, health professionals, I know you know this, but I'm just uh, uh, sending back a familiar message to you. Health professionals and patients are at a crossroads. Together we have to discover means of sustaining the tremendous capabilities of our biomedical practices while trying to ease the suffering and loss occasioned by serious illness. The price for a technologically sophisticated medicine seems to be impersonal calculating treatment from revolving sets of specialists who, because they are consumed with the scientific elements of healthcare, seem divided from the ordinary human experiences that surround pain, suffering, and dying. So, all right, if people already in the clinical community are so aware of this and trying to do something about this in the educating of clinicians, what can an anthropologist offer, after all? Well, um, I just, uh, water? Medical anthropology, which has been around in a kind of real way for about 35 years or so, um, medical anthropology, which is pretty much cultural anthropology, has had a long-standing interest in narrative from really the beginning, uh, or at least from the mid-80s, early 80s, when narrative became, I think of this as the narrative turn across a whole field of disciplines. Uh, in the 80s, and that's when anthropologists got interested in it. Um, so, okay, so there's interest in narrative, but can anthropology or ethnography contribute, as narrative medicine has, to improving medical care? Even if some of us anthropologists are theoretically and empirically committed to describing clinical practice as it currently exists, including how stories function in practice, I don't know why that has a question mark, but can this be of use? And here's another point that I have, because anthropology, I think, has been both useful and, in a way, uh, narrow in sometimes, because its role has often functioned as critique. Ah. And I think critique, you know, is important, but I think critique is also easily limited, and especially when the critique tends to, I hope any anthropologist in the room will, not feel offended, but there has been a tendency to sort of vilify the clinicians uh, in relationship to um, the patients. And I think that in addition to seeing things that we wish would be different, 
perhaps one thing that anthropologists can do by looking at, at practice as it currently exists is also trying to unearth what is profound but easily overlooked or under-theorized about, in fact, the narrative qualities that permeate medicine. And I think that's one potential contribution which maybe me and anthropology could do a little bit better job at. So um, Rita already um, gave you in the introduction a hint of what has captivated me, and this is very much because of my, um, my initial gig with the occupational therapist, which was in 1986, which I thought was for two years to finish my PhD, and I'm still connected almost 30 years later, so um, obviously it's been a long-term gig. And um, one of the things that I became captivated by in watching occupational therapists and their work with their patients was the fact that while there was plenty of storytelling, mm -hmm. there was also a lot of interaction that had a lot of narrative qualities, I began to think, and yet maybe there was very little talk. So. It was, it was watching um, you know, therapists with profoundly head injured patients or people who just plain didn't feel like talking a lot. And the, the, the small things that they might do, the, uh, you know, the, the trip to the nurse, favorite nurse's station with the wheelchair out of the room for the first time. The, the, some of you who I've talked to earlier know that I spent especially a couple years on the spinal cord unit and so that has shaped my thinking about narrative um, very profoundly. You know, the task of trying to turn the pages of a magazine with a mouth stick. You once were a car mechanic, the OT has found at least a magazine about cars. But nevertheless, there's something sort of profoundly different about one's life, trying to turn the pages of the cars one once uh, drove or fixed. Uh, and that's, that's your life with cars now. So that kind, of, um, that kind of situation I found very gripping. And it seemed to me that some kinds of moments, not all, but some took on what I thought of as very sort of dramatic qualities. And it wasn't necessarily because it looked so dramatic from the outside. It was just turning pages with the mouth stick. It was just another trip to the bathroom trying to see if you could, you know, put on your shoes with the Velcro. You know, it was these small little mundane things, but of course they're not mundane if you're a 25-year-old young man and suddenly you're learning things that you knew how to do when you were four. So, so of course, that changed everything, and I began to see how much um, Clinicians, whether they liked it or not, were caught in really very profound um, situations which were uh, of immense importance to their patients and where sometimes patients really, really did not want to talk about it. They re really were not ready to talk to the social worker. You could want to parse that out to other people, but sometimes a nurse or an OT or a therapy aide or a janitor, you know, various people were sometimes called upon or found their way into interactions with patients who, who, um, who were desperate and despairing. Yeah. And uh, so it seemed to me that narrative also had a place 
it took me a long time to think about this because I thought, is this too strange of an idea? But that narrative had a place in thinking about the qualities of clinical interactions uh, that in which something was really became at stake for a patient, in which the form of the time of time itself changed. It wasn't just doing to the patient or one thing after another. The patient wasn't just the patient with the diagnosis, but something emerged in some of these clinical interactions which had a kind of resonance or power. And I'm saying this abstractly, but I promise to actually give you an example and tell you a story to show you what, um, what, I, what I think I've been seeing in practice as it now exists. Okay, so, um, so one of the ways that I think anthropology can contribute, or I'm trying to contribute at least, in thinking about the connection of narrative within clinical practices, broadly speaking, demands a certain kind of expanded notion of narrative. There's storytelling, but then there are all other forms of narrative interpenetration. And um, this idea of active narratives is certainly, for me, one of them. Another way that became important um, in the research that I've done is beginning to think about biomedicine. Okay, this is sound like standard anthropology, right? We think biomedicine is a culture too. In fact, full of subcultures. So we, so those of you who are clinicians are kind of natives of a certain cultural world or a set of cultural worlds which we try to understand. And so another way that I got interested in narrative is in thinking about what kind of genres or archetypes, narrative archetypes, were powerful in framing clinical interactions. So um, how could we understand this narrative or the story making in, in cultural terms? What were the cultural resources or the narrative resources that people were drawing on? And um, that were not simply um, narrative genres that clinicians had in their head but are vastly popular in, uh, in, in vastly important in popular culture. And I will um, give you a couple of examples of those. And then, okay, I, have, I seem to have a lot of words on these slides because I wanted to talk and not read, so I have to try to remember what to tell you. So um, I think that these, this idea of the, of the cultural uh, genres, uh, the narrow way narrative interpenetrates biomedicine and healthcare practice will make, um, will reveal this third point that we have to think of these, um, of narrative as very much beyond the clinic. And the health encounter, as I've come to think about it, is a sort of short story from the patient perspective. It's embedded. And how do we understand that clinical encounter as an active narrative, but an active narrative that, from the patient or the family's point of view, is part of something else, different narrative horizon, well beyond the clinic. And then, um, I've been interested in health disparities for a long time, so I'm interested in all of this as also a way of thinking about issues of disparity and social justice and health inequities and to the challenges there. All right, I am simply going to uh, skip this, I think. Uh, <laughs> lucky for you. Uh, I, I think I'll just mention that this, um, because I can sound more, in, I can sound completely empirical, but I, I, I made this discovery or this had this aha about the idea of active narratives 
from my observations of occupational therapists originally and then lots of other clinical professionals. But this was in conversation, as research can be, ethnography should be, in theoretical conversation with other scholarly voices from other fields. So I was particularly moved, so I'll just give a little credit to the work of Paul Ricoeur in hermeneutic phenomenology, his three-part magisterial time and narrative in which he talks about action as in quest of a narrative. So this is not just a claim about clinical practice, but a way of trying to think about action and experience as having um, a, at least a proto-narrative form. So he gave me some confidence in making some of these claims that, uh, about what I thought I was seeing among uh, DOTs. And at the same time, this, these works were coming out in the 70s and the 80s. Jerome Bruner um, in cultural psychology uh, did some groundbreaking work on narrative cognition as a very fundamental form of sense-making in the world. And um, in anthropology, uh, people like Victor Turner were very interested in drama and in the connection of drama to non-Western healing rituals. And I thought, hmm, maybe some of these ideas about non-Western healing rituals actually could help me to think about the uh, clinical uh, practices that I was seeing. So, um, all right. Oops, yikes. No, I just did the wrong thing. Okay. Um, okay, so the research that I want to talk to you about today, which uh, Rita also clued you in about a little bit, um, is uh, from work that from work that I did once I got finished studying these occupational therapists, because I thought, okay, what happens to these clinical moments? Where, where did the active narratives go? So there is this moment of turning the pages with the mouse stick or taking the wheelchair down to the gift shop uh, uh, for somebody who hasn't been off the fifth floor spinal cord unit as profound small moments, but then what? You know, it was, and so I thought, okay, obviously I can't just keep talking to or observing clinicians or clinical care. I better find out about what the patient's perspective is in a more serious way, and I uh, realized patients lived in families, and family caregivers tended to be, or many of them did, family caregivers were really important. I needed to take my research and expand it to include many other voices, and to recognize how much, which I could see, but I really could see it when I got into family homes, how much healthcare was being done at home, and how much that I kind of was right. The clinical encounter was a short story once you got outside of the clinic. And, um, and I also wanted to pick up something that has been a long-term interest to me, as I might have mentioned, a health disparities focus. How did race and class figure into this narrative work? Okay, I'm really not telling you all about this. So this is just a big slide about uh, the study that we, can you hear me for a minute or, okay. All right, so anyway, the, the takeaway points of this is that my colleagues and I got funding, including NIH funding, for uh, ethnography that involved a study, a longitudinal study of African-American families 
started in 1997, officially ended in 2011, although we're still in touch with uh, a number of the families in this study who have children with a range of <coughs> disabilities and chronic illnesses. And our, um, should I take Use this? The mic. Okay. All right. From down here, whoops. Uh, hello? Hello? Well, I'll just stay here. I won't, I won't get so adventurous. <laughs> no, I didn't. Can you hear me? No. You know what? I won't stray. I'll stay here. Now you can, yes, because I'm here. Okay, sorry about that. I will, I will, I promise I will stay close. All right, so, um, so anyway, the, this research study, the idea of this research study was simply to take seriously the multiple perspectives surrounding the care of children with this range of different um, disabilities or illnesses. The idea was not to be so much diagnostic focused, but to think about those kind of conditions which children had which put families and clinicians, which required a lot of interaction. And our questions were really directed to considering um, the health care as, um, sorry, funding, thank you, uh, is to considering the, the health care encounter um, as a kind of fragile partnership. And that, in fact, clinicians, uh, some of them would talk about this explicitly, some not, some, some not so explicitly, but that, in fact, a lot of the effectiveness of the healthcare delivery depended on what happened at home. So, when, so for um, when things break down, clinicians, of course, talk about noncompliance, uh, and families talk about uh, uncare, uncaring clinicians or lack of access, we have a lot of language about when things break down, but we were also interested in how um, success happened, even across barriers that might seem very formidable, across race and class divides, all the divides that we know about between the professional and, you know, the people on the other side receiving care. So we were interested in examining this partnering up process and in what a narrative framework might provide us for addressing questions about um, how, to, how communities of care that could cross borders occurred when they broke down, what kinds of things seemed to facilitate them. That was the kind of NIH question, but very much using a narrative perspective. So I already mentioned um, that uh, that one of the ways I wanted to expand the idea of narrative, or that seemed so important for my material, culturally, was to think in terms of not simply a particular story at a particular moment, but of the kind of genre or archetype that culturally was helping that story to be creative. And uh, these will sound extremely familiar to you, and they should because uh, they are uh, very powerful, very pervasive, that there, from my point of view, from what I saw, it seemed to me that there were especially three um, kind of genres 
that were what you could think of as the canon of, of the medical canon. One was the idea of medicine or clinical care and healing as a kind of sleuthing, you know, the detective story, right? And others have been writing about this, I, I, uh, not only me, but these were the ones that really showed up in my material. And another one um, was the idea of a kind of repair. These are very old stories, we know them well. Repair of broken body machines. And then a third very powerful one, perhaps our most popular, is the idea of the battle. Care as a kind of war story. And, um, and all of these were important uh, and figured. One thing I won't have time to show you, but, um, but you'll just have to take my word for it. I have a lot of little examples in The Paradox of Hope of how these, these are not told narratives. They're just implicit in the way that the interactions become framed. Um, so, uh, and, and I'll give you one example where you'll see the, the way that the battle narrative plays out. Uh, so, uh, Mary Jo Good, who is uh, another medical anthropologist, has talked about the medical imaginary. And to me, one way of thinking about the medical imaginary, how we all imagine medicine, the happy endings we hope for that are attached to it, the failure of happy endings when cure is not on the other end, right? Um, when even if you do the detective work or you fight the battle but you lose the battle, you know, situations um, that inform our popular imagination about what medicine can offer and that travel now globally along with biomedicine. I think narrative is a very interesting avenue into thinking about these cultural qualities of the kinds of narratives that capture our imagination. So, all right. We know this story, right? The body is a crime scene, pathology is a perpetrator, clinical detectives, quintessentially doctors, looking for clues. And just, uh, you might recognize this figure, but what you might not know about Sherlock Holmes is that uh, this fictional character was in fact um, based on um, a famous doctor at the time, Dr. Joe Bell, who was in London, he was very good crime solver of medical dramas. And then uh, what goes around comes around. Uh, a more recent version, if you've seen House, is, uh, is the way that the popular, so, so the detective story, we know it well, right? Um, another one which is, is uh, pervasive is the idea, of course, of the body as a kind of machine that can be fixed. Here are two anthropologists describing how we think about that. Nature, society, and the human body came to be viewed as an assemblage of interchangeable parts that could be repaired or replaced from the outside. And I'm treating these as imaginary, but in some ways, of course, they're literal, right? The body can be repaired. And I mean, this, this is in one way a metaphor. In another way, it sort of works, literally. So I'm just interested in paying attention to the ways that it has symbolic power and how it can provide hope or how it can maybe provide or seem to provide a promise for a happy ending that's not going to happen. Um, again, most of my research has been in the, in the area of chronic conditions. So even if they're repairs, even if they're battles, short on happy endings. 
Okay, we're very uh, familiar with this. Again, very, uh, very much part of popular culture, our understanding is certainly of diseases like cancer. Where... Okay, so all of these, in this research, among these African-American families and the clinicians who were um, treating these children with a whole range of um, conditions, all of these families invoked or used or even were in a way trained by clinicians to think in terms of these narrative genres. But in addition, and the ones, the canonical, what I think of as the canon, um, because these are the ones that are most associated with the power of medicine. It can repair. It can, it can detect. Mm. It can fight the battle. We have the, we have the ammunition with our new medications. We can perform these things. So there, the medical, the clinician is kind of the main character. And the body is sort of uh, the, the, the other protagonist. So, but, but there was another genre that was very, very important to families. And this is just, again, uh, very common, a way that you could probably hear any, those of you who have patients, anybody talking about this, uh, about their illnesses or their disabilities, the notion of the, of the transformative journey where healing even if it's still about a battle or about detection or these other narratives are influencing it, from the family perspective in this study, it became clear that, that the notion of transformation, even the transformation of hope itself, was an enormous part of how parents began to talk about what it was like to have a child with a chronic and very serious condition. So at first, hope might have meant with a child with cancer that their ch the battle would be won and their child would be cured. And later, hope became refigured sometimes. A hope that my child will wake up one last time because I didn't quite say goodbye yet. So this transformative journey, hope was in the second title as a paradox because I could see that, that families, part of the journey was reshaping one's even sense of what kind of story I'm in and what kind of possible life worth living could I find even if cure is not a possibility, even if death is the most likely outcome. Um, all right, enough on that slide. So I'm going to introduce to you uh, a mother who I'll call Andrina and a little girl. Uh, so finally you're going to get a story out of this. Um, a little girl who I'll call Belinda. She was one of the parents in the study who I was really close to, and she's kind of a main character in the Hope Book, and she crops up again in the moral laboratories. Um, now, um, the first time I, uh, at the very beginning of meeting Andrina, she, uh, the mother, her little girl had been sicker and sicker for a whole year. And she kept taking her to emergency room after emergency room and was turned away because it seemed like it was just a, a you know, maybe a flu or, and she was getting more and more panicked because her daughter was sicker and sicker, but the clinicians in the ER weren't picking up anything because ERs are for emergency and it didn't look like an emergency to them. So that's. She didn't know how to present her child as, you could say, worth 
a detective story. You know, so the detective story wasn't getting invoked there from the clinician's point of view. That didn't look like there was much to detect except a distraught mother. And um, even at one point, she was so she was so worried about her child that she um, she she got upset at the doctor. And when I uh, and she when I interviewed her later, she said, "You know, I think that doctor thought I was doing something wrong to my child myself." Because the doctor called a social worker out, mm. which is a signal, narratively, that you have done something wrong, um, and at least in this setting. And um, sure enough, in the clinical charts, that's what the ER doc had put, that she suspected the mother of some kind of abuse of this child. So then, <laughs> Andrina, a few days later, sicker and sicker daughter, one year later, picks up her daughter, heads past the door, somehow she gets past the doors into where the secretaries are in the sort of day hospital and says in her child in her arms, I'm not leaving until somebody sees my daughter. So the startled secretary, the administrative staff, get a doctor who does begin to see a strange wobble, orders a CAT scan, and then she's diagnosed with a brain tumor um, the size of uh, an egg. So this is the beginning of the healthcare encounter Right, I mean, of course there's been a year, but the beginning of the healthcare encounter uh, of the people who then come to treat her once she has a diagnosis, who don't know this history, but are now in something in which this is a place in which there's no reason she's going to be very trustful of clinicians. So of course the clinicians have a big problem. They have, understandably, a very mistrustful mother. It doesn't look hopeful, so I want to show you, uh, I want to uh, just tell you the story of a particular session between the mother and Belinda, Andrina and Belinda, and an oncologist who she has come to trust, and ask the question, what's going on in this session such that she has come to trust this oncologist? And can we, uh, in ways the oncologist never knew about, so I'll tell you. Okay, so but I have to tell you the story. This is the main reason I've been in here with the mic is so I can not go on and on, but read you this story. Okay, so here's the room I want you to imagine. Andrina and Belinda are taken into, this is, I have to give you one more uh, hint about this. The, at this stage, Belinda has had, you can't see her very well here, but she has had, you know, she's lost most of her hair, she's had radiation, she's had surgery, and she's had chemotherapy. And this is about uh, six months post that diagnosis. So they're taken into one of the treatment rooms, and uh, Belinda, who hates going to the hospital, is very tense, and as is Andrina. There's the customary exam table covered with a white sheet. There are two or three chairs. Belinda, with her mother's help, pops up on the table while Andrina sits in one of the chairs. Belinda, as she sometimes does, pulls the otoscope off of the wall and begins just sort of tensely playing with them or hanging onto them while, while Andrina waits um, for Dr. Hansen, and I'm sitting in the chair next door, next to her. Andrina is particularly tense because she'll hear about the results of, her, of the last MRI. She waits painfully while trying to be calm for her daughter, fearing what he will tell them. Has the tumor spread 
or she hardly dares hope, has it shrunk or even disappeared altogether since the last bout of chemo. Finally, Dr. Han the battle nerd, right? Finally, Dr. Hansen enters. He smiles a greeting to Andrina, but goes immediately to sit beside Belinda. She instinctively puts her hand over her chest where her port is, fearing that he will give her a shot. She says nothing. He notices her protective move and smiles. No, no, I don't do shots, he says. That's those other guys down the hall. I'm just going to check you out a little. Use my stethoscope. You remember this, don't you, when he shows her the stethoscope. She visibly relaxes, letting her hand drop, but still quite cautious. Now, here was a surprising moment to me. Here's where I'd say a drama begins. Hey, Dr. Hansen jokes, noticing the instrument she still got clutched in her hand. You can't have those. Give them back. He playfully moves to take the otoscope from Belinda. She snatches her hand away, and now she grins. No, I can have them, she says. No, you can't, he says, raising his voice. Yes, I can, she repeats, even more loudly, laughing now. Okay, he sighs in mock defeat. I guess I'll just have to listen to your chest. Belinda hugs him, and he puts his arm around her. She leans against him, and he strokes her head and back absently while talking to Andrina, first, first time really addressing Andrina, about the results of the MRI. A moment later, he jumps down. He shows her the, the picture of the MRI. They look at it together. He points to where the tumor is, and he compares it to the last scan. It's holding stable. He said it's not shrinking, but at least it's not growing. Andrina sits down again, relieved of her worst fears. Dr. Hansen returns to Belinda, telling her he's just going to check out a few things, gently prodding her, which she now submits to without protest. The room is silent. A few minutes later, he looks up and asks Belinda and then Andrina, so how was your Thanksgiving? This is like two weeks after Thanksgiving, right? Andrina replies, okay, just my older daughter and grandson came over this year. Very small. Yeah, he laughs ruefully. My wife and I planned this big family dinner, and then at the last minute, first my parents couldn't come. And then my brother and his family couldn't make it. Then the kids canceled out. So it was just us, and a huge plate of food were still eating that turkey. <laughs> Andrina uh, and Dr. Hansen laugh at this familiar post-Thanksgiving problem. He turns his attention back to Belinda for a goodbye hug, and shortly after, he leaves the room. 15 minutes. So, how to think about this narratively. In considering the dramatic qualities of this doctor's visit, the important place to begin is that for this mother and child, every trip to the oncologist is itself an event. So while it may be routine for him, it's portentous for them. There will likely be some news, especially on visits like this after MRI. Andrina's heightened attention is not simply directed to Dr. Hansen's words, however, but to the whole exchange among the three of them. She simultaneously attends to an equally subtle text, a text she reads in his body and in what clinicians might consider the informal or chit-chat part of communication. She is assessing whether Dr. Hansen is doing all he can medically for her child. Race and class play a key role in the unstated in the unstated text of their exchange. Will her child, though black and poor, the child of a single mother, be given good care? 
is this doctor who has just denied them a bone marrow transplant because he said Belinda was too sick, is this doctor, is he withholding treatment? These are not questions that she can put to clinicians that get answers to. It, these are questions that can't be directly asked and answered, at least not easily. Rather, her questioning must be indirect, a reading of the signs in the clinical encounter itself. And so Andrina reads the signs of Dr. Hansen's actions. She has even heard some negative gossip about him in the waiting room. Others have said that they thought he was prejudiced against blacks. I don't know if it's true, but I don't care, she once told me. I was very surprised to hear this. What could she mean? He was good to me. He's good to Belinda. He really has taken care of her, she said. And then she went on. And not just like a doctor to a patient, but like a person, like a, and here she hesitated in her choice of words, almost like a father to a child. So how did this, how did the emergence of the doctor as a kind of almost father happen in this encounter? Of all the actions that Dr. Hansen takes, what she remembers best and what ultimately helps her to believe that he has done his best even after her daughter has died is his capacity to play with Belinda. It's not just any play. His playful ritual, this yes I can, no you can't game, reveals that he has come to know her well enough to participate in what turns out to be an intimate family game. So I was also at home a lot. I watched Andrina and Belinda play this all the time. The more that this little girl lost her capacity to do things, the more this game came into play. The, the four-year-old who gradually uh, uh, could only, um, you know, never wanted to eat and had to be fed from a bottle. So as she moved back in developmental time, this assertion yeah. became enormously important and this mother recognized it. And so this scenario was a familiar routine, not only between these two, I had, this is the first time I'd ever seen it, so I was surprised, but it happened quite frequently between Dr. Hansen and Belinda, but it was an echo of a game played commonly by mother and child. So Dr. Hansen has mysteriously acquired the knowledge of the no, you can't, yes, I can game, which he uses to his own purposes to put a frightened child at ease. But for Andrina, it offers some of the strongest evidence that she has found a daughter who can come to care for her, her girl quote, as a little girl, not just another cancer kid, as she puts it. So it's very interesting. What does this reassure her of? Why did, in fact, she say it didn't matter that she had heard from others that he was racist? Andrina's hope and trust rests upon her ability that she can rely upon this doctor's skills but this trust also rests on her belief that he will do everything he can. So skills are, of course, necessary, but skills are not sufficient. It also has to be that he will care, he will really care. And, um, and this trust that he will care depends, rests in turn on her own ability, her trust in her own ability to cross this border zone. That the charmingness of her child the likability of this little girl. Notice the dress. A lot of little kids go in some of their best clothes when they go to the clinical counter. They want the clinicians to like their children. So 
this likable child and this mother who knows how to joke with the doctor about Thanksgiving, all of this serves to produce in her a trust, not simply in the doctor, but in her own capacity to cross this border. And that is important for her sense of being a good mother. And notice, I didn't spend a lot of time analyzing this session, and I won't take too long here, but if you think about what happened in that session from a kind of narrative form point of view, look at how it went. So the beginning, you have Dr. Hansen playing this little game, right? So it begins not with anything clinical at all. You only have 15 minutes, and yet he still doesn't start there. So we have a little family moment. Then Belinda calms down. As she calms down, Andrina calms down. I mean, parents are watching their children to try to read this, of course. And as Andrina calms down, then he tells her the news of the MRI. And then we get the Thanksgiving story. So I said, here is a kind of family sandwich with the clinical in the middle, the beginning and middle and end of this session, have in them a kind of, they're sort of wrapped around by interactions that aren't strictly clinical. And it's this shaping of the clinical within the non, what you would call the non-clinical, or what I would say was, you know, of the essence, that helped to kind of reinforce this, um, this narrative form, he told a little story about Thanksgiving, but it's not just that story. The narrative form, the shape of it as a whole, was, was very powerful and turned this into a kind of healing drama for her. This as it's repeated. Okay, that's the way she sees it. What about how Dr. Hansen sees it? Well, from Dr. Hansen's point of view, and I, I think I made this clear, but just to, to to look at the moral weight, her ability to find a good doctor was for her, Andrina, a measure of her own worth as a good mother. Her, her compliance for so long with doctors in the ER has made, gave her a tremendous sense of guilt. That she, all the parents in the study have talked about the need to learn how to be non-compliant, just right non-compliant. Not so non-compliant get kicked out, but to be a good parent is not necessarily to just listen to what the clinician says, right? Um, so, and she learned that the hard way. So um, that's a question she would always have to ask herself. Should she have tried harder? You know, why did she, why did she allow the doctors? Why, couldn't she, why didn't she trespass sooner? So that's a question for her. But then she seems to have found an oncologist she can trust. But then, all right, then at the end, so here you have two narratives. So for her, this is a transformative journey about hope. From hope for cure to hope that, as she said in the funeral speech for her daughter, that she could say that her daughter lived the best life possible in her uh, just one week shy of her sixth birthday. That she lived the best life possible and that she was treated by good doctors in, who did everything they could, but it wasn't their call, it was God's call. And now she was healed in heaven. So hope for her is reconfigured here. However, this is a hard hope for her to sustain because from Dr. Hansen's point of view, this is a battle story. It's not a journey. 
right? And it's a battle story when, they, when there was nothing else he could do. Instead of de delivering the news himself, he gave it to the case nurse to deliver. And I was standing there, and it happened in the hall outside of the treatment room, where the nurse said sort of quietly, you know, I think you better get ready. I think we're just talking three or four, three to six months now. And I thought, did I hear that right? Does that mean it's over? And um, so, um, so when Dr. Hansen wasn't the one to be there, Andrina said to me, she just, she was stunned. She said, but I thought he'd be there for the whole thing, even for the dying part. So this not being there for the dying part, this, then she has to rethink, was she a good mother? Yeah. Had she found a doctor she right. could trust? Right. This, this was a tremendous struggle, so she held on to that through the funeral, um, and then later she finally tracked down Dr. Hansen. She volunteered in the hospital with other parents whose kids had cancer, and she found him mm -hmm. to reconnect because that failure to, of him to show up. But of course, if the battle story is the canonical genre, right, then his work was done, the story was over. Cancer had won. But if transformative journey is the dominant genre, then, then at least the delivery of the bad news. So, all right. And I thought I would uh, simply end with a lovely quote from Rita. Um, Patients long for doctors who comprehend what they go through and who, as a result, stay the course with them through their illnesses. So, okay, now I'm really being, okay, I'm not telling you all these things. <laughs> um, yes, I'm not telling you, I just, I think the conclusion that I would, the takeaway lesson I would say um, of all the many things we could say about this is that on the one hand, you could see what I have told you as a kind of critique. Who is this Dr. Hansen, and why did he disappear? On the other hand, I would say, and that's in there, but then on the other hand, I would say, look at the amazing work this doctor was doing and how little he knew. Because in interviews with him, there was no hint. There was a hint that he knew he had a pretty good relationship with his mother, but the subtlety of being both the doctor and a kind of a father was not part of his understanding of what he was doing, and it wasn't part of his own story about what role he was in, what story he was in with this, with this mother. And so for me, it would be equally important, maybe more important, to give, to show uh, from a narrative perspective how beautifully orchestrated his effort was, how beautifully he and this mother crossed immense divides with terrible trust, uh, with terrible mistrust, broken, broken trust on the, on the, um, before he ever even met her. So I think the moral of the story is also, it, it makes, it's so important to see how profound yes. a little game of yes I can, no you can't, uh, might be. And I'll end it. Oh, right, questions. We, we have time for a few questions.
much. I'm a primary care doctor and I've been in practice over 50 years. And one of the most uh, frustrating experiences not to know that one of my patients has died under the care of an oncologist or something. I happen to do eulogies to my patients and I tell the story. But uh, it's, I'm reminded of the Civil War and the Grant and Lee kind of surrendering. And is there a new language, a new metaphor, new rituals for doing this? Uh, because in medical school, the hidden curriculum is so powerful that uh, doctors get their egos by surrendering to the technology. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you'd comment on that. Yeah. That's, um... Okay, I have to stand here because I'm not, speaking of technology, I'm completely unable to figure out how to turn this thing on, so I'm, I'm just here. You know, I, I really, this is just my read, so I do think, of course, the surrender to the technology is a good way of understanding one dynamic, but, but, a lot of the ethnographic work I've done now for more than 20 years in clinical settings keeps showing to me, and I happen to pick a doctor, but I could pick many other professionals, that very often the kinds of things that turn out to be so profoundly impactful on the family end were the things that get stuck under art of bedside manner, chit-chat. I mean, we have a very dismissive vocabulary. One of the reasons I think narrative medicine is so important is not just to tell us heart-wrenching stories, but to say, can we put some vocabulary? Can we theorize this? Can we talk about what those dimensions are so that it becomes more teachable, less accidental, and are there ways of helping practicing clinicians to become more attentive to the things that are not going to be in the medical. The fact that these things are so difficult to chart, for example, I mean, you know that Dr. Hansen never put the yes, I can, no, you can't game into his notes that day. And so the fact that there's not places for documentation, there's not vocabulary for documentation, I think this is very profound because I think it keeps when I studied OTs, my colleagues and I thought of a lot of what I'm describing to you, which is all over the place in OT practice, as an underground practice. Yeah. It's almost something that clinicians wanted to hide, you know, and they, they didn't want to kind of claim it. Uh, so I, I think there are a lot of distractions like technology, which is not just a distraction but important, but I also think we are simply missing the kind of language that could come in from the humanities or the social sciences. I just imported language from literary theory. So I didn't give you a long analysis of this particular case, but I could easily have talked in terms of literary terms like risk and suspense and trouble and um, foreshadowing. I mean, there are vocabularies from other disciplines, but not the sciences so often which I think could actually help, um, could help that the, to, to make this more visible yeah. and not just the accident of a, a good doctor who doesn't even know how good he is, so he leaves too soon. <laughs> he needed one more conversation. Yeah. Um, I'm a psychotherapist and uh, much of my work is in the 
Well, I, I'm, I'm going to actually almost uh, re slightly reframe that because uh, one, of the, one of the NIH grants that we got was after having done this study for a few years is that we proposed that while we thought it was very important to have something like cultural competence, some kinds of classes in cultural competence or some kind of cultural awareness, we thought that it was also important for clinicians to know how much cultural competence parents had to acquire in order to navigate the culture of biomedicine. So in our NIH grant, our second boundary crossing grant, we proposed to resituate cultural competence, not in the sense of taking all the, putting extra burden on parents, but simply to help parent, to help clinicians be alert to the tremendous amount of work that parents were doing in learning these languages, in I mean, this mother, Andrina, who I've been talking about, she not only got better at giving shots because she had to give chemo at home to her daughter, better at giving the shots than some of the novice nurses. Part of what she had to learn was how to hide her expertise in front of the nurses, how to try to coach them in how to give a better shot to her daughter, who's, with, you know, had, had plenty of shots, but also how to, um, how not to um, make them feel like they weren't experts. She understood that the story is that they're the experts and she's coming in need of care. She understood that plot structure very well. But sometimes parents who become, as they say, experts in their own kid's diagnosis end up knowing more than a lot of entry-level professionals. It, it's bound to happen. But we, in my canonical genres, the three, the sleuthing and whatnot, the clinicians are the main characters with the disease or whatever, right? And so I think that part of what I try to talk to when I talk to clinicians is to say, you know, let me just give you some hint of what level of competence your, of the parents have or, or patients have and how much we're demanding that they become good at navigating these very uh, obscure languages uh, that we that we sort of insist that they come to know and at least recognize that even though people can be one more that even though people can very sympathetic since I'm talking about Adrena very very sympathetic uh, therapist talked about her as a very loving mother but very overwhelmed and I think you know she was both loving and overwhelmed but in saying that what they also wouldn't know is that at her house she was like a hotline for parents who had come to know her in the waiting room whose children also had cancer because she seemed to have figured out how to navigate 
the hospital in ways they couldn't figure out. And so whenever I tried to do an interview with her at home, I was interrupted continually by parents. Wow. So I think there's a huge amount of expertise on that other side, which is also quite invisible. And I, if, if clinicians should learn something about race and class and ethnicity, maybe part of what they could learn is to think about biomedicine as a culture and the expertise on the other side. And how do you make these partnerships, partnerships of complementarity where everybody brings something? You know, it's not denying the expertise of the clinicians, but to, anyway, something like that. That's a really good question. So, especially because I think I have one little answer. Otherwise, it wouldn't be such a good question, but I think I can answer it a little bit. Because we do wonder, we ethnographer, writer types, what, what good is it, what we're doing? And I just, this is just now coming from occupational therapy, so I'm not sure how other uh, practices would talk about this. But when I first did this research, my big interest was in writing an anthropology book because I was an anthropologist. I wanted to get you know, recognition in anthropology. But the OT said, you know what? You're giving language to a practice that we haven't had. And, that's, that's, and it was both the writing of the stories but also the analytic frame, framework that I was trying to bring to bear. And, and so the first book that I did, I co-authored with, um, with a uh, occupational therapist, and it was called Clinical Reasoning. Um, and I think it's still, in fact, I think, okay, the OT students still get it here at Columbus, it's like from 1994. So I guess what I would say is that part of what we can bring from this other perspective is not only telling stories, but how do we analyze, I guess I'm going back and back to this point, how do you give more vocabulary? How do you give more constructs? which to me seems part of the potential gift, <laughs> if there is one. And I think for some practices, at, in some times, that's a gift that people are interested in who are practicing clinicians. Uh, that I'm describing is the hardest research that I've ever done. 
And I think the things that I kind of could tell were important when I was studying occupational therapists and I was like more looking at the clinical point of view just exploded once I got to patient, parents and kids and families, like the issues of hope and the issue of the short story. The, I'm like, okay, I completely underestimated how, how, how important it is to resituate the healthcare encounter within this, this family world, at least for me as an ethnographer, and to try to bring that back to clinicians. And so, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are parts of this um, story about Andrina who, um, who died uh, 10 years ago. I, I only, I wrote the Paradox of Hope book. In 2010 it came out, I did, wasn't gonna t say that she died because I needed to think about it and I needed to think about how and why she died um, because she had struggled with the idea that if her daughter died, she would commit suicide, which for her as a Christian was, was not an accept, morally acceptable ending, right? And so um, then she did unexpectedly die several years later. And I really struggled about how I wanted to think about that and write about that. Uh, so yeah, this, is, this research has simply profoundly changed me. I think, well, maybe my, I have a friend here from high school who came to, who came to see this talk and she probably thinks I'm more or less the same, but for me, <laughs> for me, I would say that uh, I would say that this um, really affected me, and it, it even affected the way that I. Maybe this is what I'm supposed to say, but you know, it even affected the way that I could go through the death of my stepfather, somebody I'd never been close to, um, because of just seeing what parents were able to do. I mean, I was. I'm not saying all the parents, but some of them. You know, was really enormously. Um, enormously compelling. And the only other thing I would say is that I did this with a team. I don't think I could do this research by myself. Um, so, and, I, and, I, and I'm hesitant even about putting too much burden on clinicians of how much they have to bear the burden of the pain and the suffering of the people that they treat. Uh, but maybe they can take a lesson from ethnography where you can hear a lot of things that you can't fix. And maybe it's the hearing that is the thing, um, the witnessing, you know, that is at least part of the thing. And then you you have clinical skills, so that's even a lot of thing. But uh, so yeah, so this was a team. This for me had to be as part of a team. We are sitting in an institution which has to do with training medical students and interns and residents. And it seems to me remarkably relevant to encounter some of the points you've made. And indeed, this is the thing that Dr. Sharon has put here for us to pay attention to, which is to whom is our obligation? Well, it used to be physicians, Alliston, nurses, and social workers, and all those other health workers. However, the person who, in 1926, said the secret of caring for the patient is caring for the patient. <laughs> and it is going to remind me who that was, my brain. Peabody. 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 George Peabody. Was he at Harvard or the no. He was at Harvard. Okay, Harvard has done good things in medicine and in medicine teaching. But the recognition that the doctors can do things, but the capacity to be helpful expands way beyond 
whether we're going to give them digitalis or quinine or whatever we're going to give them, to listening to the patient and caring for the patient and having the patient think that what my pains are matter to you, Dr. Hansen or Dr. Yeah. Peabody or whoever it is. Yeah. So it seems to me that the thing that Rita has played a major role in bringing to our students at this institution, and I'm sure the same applies to all the other medical institutions we care to relate to, is that caring for the patient is also an obligation. And I, I think Rita, that most of the senior physicians and junior physicians who are teaching here are aware of this caring for the patient obligation. I really admired this Dr. Hansen. So, so okay. One answer is I wonder if he knew how, if he knew how important his small moments were. If that would give him a certain amount of courage, like maybe it would just be one more conversation. Maybe it wouldn't be that he would, you know. So that would. To me, I sometimes think, and this is why I'm a little critical of critical medical anthropology, sometimes I think, we're asking so much of clinicians already, can't we help also make more visible the, the important things that happen? And if he thought he was successful, if he didn't just lose a battle, right? So of course he feels that he's lost this battle, he's losing this little girl. But if if he had this mother's more expansive view of hope in which she got to live her short life, this is where I think maybe she would have something to offer. I don't, this is a very impractical answer, but she struggled with this. She thought, you know, she, she said, why did he disappear on me? And then she said, you know, maybe it's too hard for doctors. Maybe they need some therapy. <laughs> so, <laughs> So just the fact that she could do this kind of imagination, this work of imagination, 
I think, well, if she could do that from her end, maybe Dr. Hansen could do it from his end. But I do think that maybe clinicians also, I'm really on a thing about this, to see how these little moments are potentially big moments. Because they're not the only ones in there. I mean, the parents are also in there. They're not all by themselves with one cancer and one doctor and some bunch of chemotherapy. I mean, there's, you know, they're also, there's a whole other way of thinking about this, but I don't think that clinicians get a chance to um, consider that because these canonical genres are so powerful. So for him, it's just a, a lost battle. Not just, it's horribly a lost battle. But Debbie, I'm glad you asked that yeah. because of course we're all stuck at that horrible misdeed that he did by abandoning. Yeah, and that's pages more severe, right? And I think yeah. our hope from this work is that there there may be means to cultivate the awareness before another abandonment But it's a very cautionary that you bring us, that even in the face of skill, this physician not only lost heart, but the damage. Uh, I, I think we've got to um, close. We're, we're, I'm keeping you way beyond time. Thank you.